ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Anna Ferris, and I have this podcast fittingly titled Anna Ferris is Unqualified, where each week a different celebrity and I attempt to give relationship and dating advice. Recent co-hosts have included Matthew McConaughey. You got somebody you care about, you lost track of them. Go find out. Margaret Cho. Vacation <laughs> sex is always irresistible. Gwyneth Paltrow. I could make it all about them and not have to focus on my own problems. <laughs> and Seth Rogen. <laughs> so if you're wondering what your favorite celebrity or I would do in your situation, just listen and subscribe to Anna Ferris is Unqualified. Free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcast everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, and this is Farm Policy Playlist. We are going to do something a little bit different this week. On each episode, as you know, we introduce you to a new podcast from somewhere around the world. But this time, we're going to share with you a foreign policy live event we did last week on the Russian threat to invade Ukraine. These events are for subscribers only. They're just one of the many things that you get with a subscription to foreign policy. But as listeners to this podcast, we're going to give you access as well. So what you're going to hear is our editor-in-chief, my boss, Ravi Agrawal, talking to two people who've spent a lot of time watching events unfold in Russia over the years, and specifically watching Russian President Vladimir Putin. One is Michael McFaul, who served as the US ambassador to Russia during the Obama administration, and you'll hear more about his bio from Ravi in a second. And the other guest is yours truly. You know me as the host of this show and as a national security correspondent of foreign policy. But I was also a correspondent in Moscow and I covered events across the region. And much of my work at FP today still focuses on Russia. So here's that conversation. You'll hear Ravi asking listeners for questions. This went out live to our readers, but you're hearing a recording. So unfortunately, you won't be able to engage with Ravi. For that, you need to be a subscriber. Okay, here it is. Hello, and welcome to a foreign policy live event where we're asking, is Russia going to war in Ukraine again? I'm Ravi Agrawal, Editor-in-Chief of Foreign Policy, and it's my pleasure to be your host for the next 30 minutes. Now, as you all know, FP Live discussions are where we bring experts and insiders to discuss issues in the news. Unlike cable TV, there are no ad breaks, and we get to go deep into the issues. As always, it is a perk of your FP subscription that you get to ask questions too. So click on the Q&A button on Zoom, send in your questions, or you can email events at foreignpolicy.com. I'll pose them to our guests. Now, there's been one main global diplomatic story this week, and that's the high-level talks between Washington or its allies and Moscow, with a threat of more than 100,000 troops lined up by its border with Ukraine. Russia is refusing to rule out invading that country unless the West pulls back its forces from former Soviet states and commits that Ukraine and other countries will never join NATO. So what to make of all of the diplomatic talks underway? What does Russia's Vladimir Putin really want and why? What role does the winter have to play in it all? What are the chances of war next month? 
And what options do Washington and Brussels still have on the table? We've got two terrific guests to talk about exactly that today. Michael McFall is a professor of political science at Stanford University, the director of their Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies. He served as U.S. ambassador to Russia between 2012 and 2014 and wrote a book drawing on his time there. It's called From Cold War to Hot Peace, an American ambassador in Putin's Russia. And Amy McKinnon is FP's national security reporter. She's lived and worked in Moscow and has reported from across Eastern Europe. Welcome to both of you. It's great to have you on. Glad to be here. here. Terrific. All right, let's get started. Amy, I'll start with you just very quickly. How do we get here? Because obviously, um, you know, if we go back about a year ago, this was not on the table and yet things changed very quickly uh, in the last 45 days or so. Just walk us through that. You're right, Ravi. I mean, the situation has escalated incredibly quickly. So starting in late October, early November of last year, we begin to we began to see signs that Russia was again moving troops, moving military equipment close to the borders with Ukraine. Now, uh, you know, longtime watchers of this conflict are, are, you know, are very familiar with, you know, seasonal scares that Russia may be about, about to launch a renewed invasion. And we had a preview of this in the spring when Russia began to build up its troops. Uh, in April and May of last year. But what was different this time round and what really caught my attention very early on was the response of US officials. We very quickly began to see them making phone calls to, to NATO partners, to allies in Europe, and of course, holding discussions with Ukraine to let them know what they were seeing. And my sense is that, that the officials in Washington were seeing some kind of intelligence which had them deeply alarmed about mm-hmm. Russia's intentions. There was something they were seeing beyond these satellite images. And, and where things stand now is Russia has over 100,000 troops massed at the border with Ukraine. They have a huge swath of territory at their disposal. And this week we saw this, this round of talks desperately trying to, to talk Russia down. And just if I may, um, you know, whilst this began about Ukraine, and there's of course talk about sanctions and Western responses, what really is at the heart of, of the diplomacy this week is Russia is trying to kind of unilaterally redraw uh, the European security architecture, which followed the Cold War. And that's what they've been pushing on. They want guarantees that Ukraine will never join NATO and that NATO will withdraw from from, uh, members in Eastern Europe. And and that was the subject of the talks in Europe this week. Ambassador McFall, I know it's a fool's errand to try and guess what Putin is thinking right now. And I guess that's partially because as you, I think, tweeted the other day, Putin himself may not have decided how he's going to act. So I guess my question, I'll frame it differently. What is Putin getting out of the last month or so of talks and engagement? What's what's in it for him? Well, I'm glad you said it so I didn't have to say it, Ravi, because I don't know what Putin's thinking. Uh, Sergei Rybkov doesn't know. CIA Director Burns doesn't know. And that's the way he likes it. Uh, and, you know, I, I used to deal with him uh, when I worked for five years in the Obama administration. I've studied and written about him for 20 years. Uh, we met first in 1991. So I've, I, Putin's been in my life for a long time. And I want to say, I don't know. Um, but you asked a different, interesting question. Uh, I think he's actually achieved a lot um, already. If nothing else happens, he's achieved a lot. Uh, most importantly, he's changed the channel in terms of what we are discussing with respect to European security. If I were walking into class tomorrow, actually I'm walking into class tomorrow, a different class, but if I were starting an intra-course on introductory course to my Stanford students on European security, and what have been some of the threats to European security over the last several years, I probably would have started with when Russia invaded Georgia 
in August 2008 and declared as independent countries Abkhazia and South Ossetia. Uh, I probably would have started with Russia invading again Ukraine in 2014, annexing territory for the first time since World War II in Europe uh, when they took Crimea, and then, and then fomenting these separatists in Donbass that's been going on since 2014. 14,000 people have died in that war. I probably would have added that a threat to European security are assassination groups that go after Europeans in cities like London and Salisbury and Berlin and Tomsk, where they tried to kill Alexei Navalny and said, well, that's a real threat to security, to the personal lives of Europeans. And all those things should be on the table. And I probably would have added the INF Treaty uh, and other uh, you know, treaties over the last 20 years that have eroded. Uh, but instead, what are we talking about? We're talking about NATO expansion. We're talking about an alleged conversation between Jim Baker and Mikhail Gorbachev 30 years ago and, and focusing on that. And, you know, what can we do to solve this alleged problem, even though NATO has not invaded Russia, it hasn't invaded any country in Europe. I think it's actually been stabilizing for European security. So from that perspective, if you're Vladimir Putin, that's a giant achievement. We're not talking about any of the, the, the obvious belligerent things that he has done as president of Russia to undermine European security. Instead, we're talking about this abstract thing from some historical thing from long ago. And let's be clear that the, the topic of Ukraine joining NATO is not a hot issue agenda item uh, in European security right now. Uh, NATO is not pushing for it. Uh, Ukraine, it's changed, of course, because Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. So if you look at public opinion polls inside Ukraine before he invaded, there was very little support for Ukraine. It was a non-issue. Uh, and I can tell you, I was in the government for five years dealing with President Medvedev and President Putin. I can't even remember a serious wow. conversation about whether or not you know, NATO should expand because it was just a non-issue uh, because of the situation of being occupied, both Georgia and Russia. But he has now made it an issue and we're all debating it. That's a, I think that's a big, significant victory for Putin. That's a win before there's war. Um, I, I wanna push you a little bit more on that Ambassador McFall, but before I do, um, Amy wrote a piece for FP uh, in which she was looking at, you know, Putin could have made these moves at any point of time, but she was able to sort of try and answer why now. Amy, why now? Why, why the last couple of months? What's changed? Well, I'm not actually sure that Putin could have made this move any time. And I think that's partly why he's reached the calculus that now may be the time. I mean, there's several layers to what's behind this buildup and these threats. Some of them, as Ambassador McFall said, go right back to the initial days after the collapse of the Soviet Union and, uh, and, and NATO expansion in subsequent decades, Russia has always had an issue with that. They've never been happy with that and have raised it many times over the years, but they just, I think, have never had the, have had the strength and the capacity and the will to try and force these questions to a head. So there's that kind of broader historical context. And then there's some, some more things from recent years, such as the election of Volodymyr Zelensky in Ukraine in 2019. You know, Zelensky had never held political office before he became president. And I think the Kremlin saw in that somebody that was going to be weak, someone they could manipulate and maybe force into making concessions, which would be beneficial to them uh, in, in, uh, in, in the war in the Donbass in Eastern Ukraine. But Zelensky proved, proved to actually be a pretty shrewd politician. He has not taken the bait uh, from Russia and he's not agreed to any of these things. And so I think there it's a combination of factors where they see that the situation is not going in their favor. 
Um, but the Russia ha is in a position of strength right now to force these issues. And I think they also look to the West and they see a Europe which is divided in chaos. There is a new and untested German government. Uh, you know, there's Brexit. There's a pandemic, of course. There's Washington and which is grappling with its own internal challenges. I think they see a Europe and the West which is divided and weak and see that, that now may be the time to, to push for these that makes sense. Ambassador McFall, um, you know, on this very point, you know, when when the Biden administration came to power, um, it said that it wanted a stable and predictable relationship with Russia, in part uh, so that it could focus on China. In hindsight now, do you think that was a misstep? Well, I'll get to that in a minute. But I, I think Amy's excellent piece is important for everybody to understand. The why now is very important. And this pivot that Zelensky did, you know, he came in, he said he was going to make peace with the Russians. Remember, he's from the eastern part of Ukraine. Russian is his first language. He thought that he had the capability to do it. And in Moscow, thought that they had a willing interlocutor. And then he pivoted hard the other way. And he's gone against Russia's interests. He's gone again. He's arrested Mr. Medvedchuk, who's a, a Putin ally inside Ukraine. He shut down Russian television inside Ukraine. I think that's really important for people to understand that, that this has really exacerbated from uh, Vladimir Putin's view, the, 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 the situation with Ukraine. But I want to add one more because it's related to your question. Remember uh, that we used to have a president who also talked about that NATO is obsolete and maybe we should get rid of it. Right. Um, and while President Trump was in office, Putin held out the possibility that he could work with Trump. Uh, to achieve his objectives vis-a-vis -vis NATO. And had Trump been re-elected, I think there would have been a major crisis within NATO. I think that, you know, uh, that would have been a serious question. And so the election of President Biden is also one of the factors that says why now, because that other option uh, is off the table, at least for a few more years. Um, to your specific question, Ravi, um, I want to I want to be honest. I think initially a year ago, you know, these are people I, you know, I used to work with in the, in the Obama administration, including the president himself when he was vice president. I used to travel with him to Russia and Ukraine and Georgia. And so the, the basic notion that I oversimplify, I would say, do more on China, less on the Middle East and freeze Russia and Europe in place. That was, that was kind of the basic broad swaths of what they wanted to do. Sounded very reasonable to me a year ago. Um, but the problem with all great grand strategies, and I was part of drafting those documents uh, during the transition in the Obama era, is that other people get a vote, right? Uh, right. The Taliban get a vote, Putin gets a vote. And so now I think uh, they need to abandon that phrase. Uh, that, that phrase doesn't make any sense anymore. Um, you, yeah, you know, you can want that and, and you can want democracy and, and China and you can want Iran to give up their nuclear weapons and North Korea to give up their nuclear weapons. And, and I'd like I'd like to dunk a basketball. Uh, but but having objectives that are not attainable is not prudent diplomacy. And my sense is that the Biden folks are moving away from that, at least practically in terms of their diplomacy. I think they need now to retire that phrase as well. We'll be right back after this break. 
Hey, my name is Coleman Hughes, and I'm the host of the podcast Conversations with Coleman. I think that the country is in flames already. We are headed toward the end of the American project. The ability to think and speak freely is what moves society forward, where I have honest, unfiltered conversations about the most pressing issues of our time. Our world is becoming more polarized. Partisan hatred has infected every sphere of life. You can be canceled for having opinions that depart from the consensus of a few social media. Join me every week on Conversations with Coleman as I challenge convention, question everything, and seek the truth with an open mind. Uh, Ambassador McFall, one more thing just on Putin, which um, our, our viewers may not know. Um, given that you've been in the room and in, in the meetings, the types of meetings that have gone on this week, give us a sense of, you, you know, uh, Putin's obviously been locked away in the Kremlin for, for much of the pandemic. How yes. much power do his proxies and his delegates have in these meetings um, so when Wendy Sherman is is across the table for them from them, what can they actually say and do? That's a great question, Ravi. Uh, first of all, he's not locked away in the Kremlin. He's locked away out at his compound. Uh, he lives outside of Moscow. He rarely comes to the Kremlin these days. Uh, and that was true before the pandemic, by the way. Uh, I think this is a very important uh, point you're making or prompting me to make, which is that he over the years has become more and more isolated. He sits out there, the ministers drive out there to meet with them. Uh, every now and then he comes to town before the pandemic. Today, he, he basically lives out there. I've been there. I've, you know, Barack Obama, President Obama had to drive out to see him out there when he was prime minister. Think about that, how interesting that is. We didn't meet at the White House, the formal office of the prime minister in 2009. We drove an, out, an hour outside of town so that the president of the United States could meet with the prime minister of Russia at his, you know, dacha is not the right word, it's a giant compound, but where, where he lives. And he spends most of his time out there. Number two, he is the only decision maker that matters. Uh, that's been true for a long time. It's increasingly so. Uh, 20 years ago, he did listen to other people. He doesn't today. And therefore, when these negotiations are happening, you know, Mr. Ribkoff in particular, when he met with Wendy Sherman, and he's somebody I used to meet with on a weekly basis uh, um, when I was ambassador. Um, extremely competent, talented diplomat, in my view, but he is highly constrained. Uh, he is not there to negotiate. He is there to deliver talking points and then go back and report to Putin. By the way, I bet you he doesn't even report directly to him. Uh, I doubt they will physically meet, uh, just to give you a sense of how their, their system works. And then Putin is the ultimate decider. So when you hear these very strong statements afterwards uh, um, in, all, in all three different venues, right? Geneva, Brussels, and, and now today at the OSCE meeting, uh, those are all diplomats that are implementing talking points that have no wiggle room to, to maneuver with them. And they're just reiterating what the, the point is today. Now, some are saying, well, this means talks are over and this means disaster. And I have never been optimistic about the, the prospects for a genuine negotiation. Um, this feels like ultimatums to me. But I do want to at, at, you know, pump the brakes for a moment to remind uh, your listeners and your viewers that, of course, initial negotiations always begin with maximalist positions. Right. Uh, our side, too, by the way, that's there's nothing unique about Vladimir Putin with that. And I think, therefore, it's premature to jump to the conclusion that these talks are over. And it reminds me, I was part of the negotiations over the New START Treaty in 2009 and 2010. 
If you go back to the early phases of those negotiations in 2009, the Russians said categorically, unequivocally, it is a red line that there has to be limits on missile defenses to, in order for them to sign a new START treaty. And they said that for many, many months. And some of our most difficult negotiations with them, including between the president, uh, President Obama and President Medvedev were over that very issue. And right at the very end, um, we found a way to resolve that problem without um, uh, having missile defense limits in that treaty. I, I'm not, I, I do not want to suggest that that's where I think this negotiation is going. I think this is much harder, but it's just a, 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 you know, an anecdote from the past mm -hmm. that sometimes diplomats take maximalist positions in the beginning. That doesn't mean that's going to be their end point. Right. And, and that's partly because they're trying to have some room to sort of um, uh, have an off-ramp later on uh, right. for, for what they settle on. I want to bring in some audience questions. Um, and before I do that, I'll name check a couple. Uh, Keith Mines has a question on, on China and Iran <laughs> and how former regional powers that fell on hard times are now making an assertive comeback. Mel Cap asks, what can middle-level powers like Canada, Spain, and Australia do to support the NATO position. The question I want to put to you both is from Mark Schwartz, um, which is very similar to a question I was about to get to. And that is that let's explore the hypothetical that Putin decides to invade next month. Um, give us a sense of what that would look like. I mean, obviously there's 50 shades of gray between uh, 100,000 troops invading uh, and nothing happening. Um, so A, what would that look like? And then B, um, how do sanctions then unfold and what other responses become more realistic? Um, why don't I put the A to Amy? If you can give us a sense, Amy, of what that might look like. And Ambassador McFall, I'll come to you then um, for what the response or the range of responses available to the White House, what they might look like. Amy, you first. So I think the short answer is we don't know, and no one can claim to know for sure. Um, as Ambassador McFall said earlier, the only person who really knows how this is going to pan out ultimately is Putin, and the only you know, and the only person who knows how this will unfold is is uh, is the Russian president. But I think, you know, one question I've had throughout all of this is we talk about invasion, but we don't talk about much. But well, what does that look like? You know, it's talked about as if this would be a very classical military campaign. You know, artillery strikes, tanks rolling across the border. You know, a hundred thousand. Uh, troops surging, surging across the border into Ukraine. But what we do know uh, from Russia's MO, looking at previous conflicts and previous, um, uh, you know, actions short of conflict is, uh, is that they're very opportunistic um, and, uh, and that they're very nimble, you know, and that they, mm. they seize opportunities and opening openings where they can. So, you know, this could be an, an all-out conflict, an all-out war, but there also could be many steps before that, you know, that we could see cyber attacks involved. Um, there could be some kind of uh, attempts at provocation in eastern Ukraine and the Donbass and escalation of the Russian-backed rebels there. Um, you name it. I mean, they have a lot of pressure points when it comes to Ukraine. There's a lot of ways that they can turn the dial up, dial up on this. And I think my question then is, well, you know, if this is something short of an all-out invasion, what is the Western response then and how united is it? You know, wh mm. what is the, I mean, I have put this question to the administration today, so let's see if they get back to me on it. But what is the trigger point that will actually trigger those sanctions that they have put mm. together? Ambassador McFall, I'd love for you to weigh in. Um, Ambassador. Um, just just to underscore a couple of things um, that Amy said, I, and and you know, we're all speculating. So I, I want to keep, uh, keep yeah. saying that as a preface, but yeah. um, 
number one, as you said, too, 50 shades. I don't know if it's 50, but it's most certainly seven or eight, Robbie. That is between doing nothing and marching to Kiev. He has lots of options um, from, you know, cyber attacks to military, you know, strikes without soldiers to soldiers to Donbass, but nothing else to, to you know, the pincer strike that he's prepared for. So in terms of capabilities, just to remind everybody, the capabilities that are on the borders today are significantly greater than they were in 2014, um, you know, five or six times, depending on how you count soldiers. And they're not just in the East, they're in the South and they're in the North, right? They're in Crimea, they're in the Northern part of their border. And I think if there was a all out conventional war, you would see Russian soldiers come through Belarus as well. So they're prepared. They have, they are prepared for a massive conventional strike. Uh, now the good news on that front is that the Ukrainian army is significantly better trained and better equipped than they were in 2014. But the bad news is so is the Russian army uh, significantly more, uh, you know, better equipped, better trained, lots of uh, different weapons, and it would be a horrific conventional war uh, if it happened. One thing that's striking to me, and I, and I don't have an answer for it, is, is the rather limited mobilization you've seen in Ukraine so far. Uh, and I, I, you know, I'm told that they don't want to do anything that could be used as a provocation uh, for Vladimir Putin, and they're very afraid of the scenario uh, in Georgia in August of 2008, where there, there was a provocation and, and Putin used that as a pretext to invade. But it also is striking, you know, maybe it suggests something about their calculus in terms of the, the worst case scenarios. Um, if, but, but second point about what Amy said, just to underscore it, the, the hard part for the Biden administration is those gray ambiguous uh, actions in between doing nothing and all out war. Because in those phases, in those places, uh, the response is going to be a lot harder to be unified. You know, it was a great unified statement at NATO, and, and they were very pleased with there was no noise uh, in the position. But if it's a limited strike, uh, then there will there could be noise. And that kind of response is a lot more complicated. Uh, I would remind you, for instance, when the first major cyber attack that I know of uh, that was public was in 2007 against Estonia. The Russians attacked Estonia um, and the Estonian government most certainly thought that that was a attack on them. And Article 5 of the NATO treaty says that an attack on one is an attack on all. But that was not the way that attack was um, interpreted by the NATO alliance. And so those gray areas, I think, will make it harder for the Biden administration to, to put together the coalition that they hope they'll have should there be an escalation of military violence. That's just fascinating. And, you know, on your point about how Ukraine's military has gotten stronger um, and so has Russia's, uh, again, Amy has an excellent piece on that uh, up on the site. Um, Michael Patterson has a question that, again, is, is one that I wanted to ask you, Ambassador McFall, and that's about Nord Stream 2, uh, the potential sanctions, and I believe the Senate is due to deliberate those again today. Um, just in general, uh, even if you don't want to go into specifics on today's stuff, how disruptive is this process to the administration? Is it a distraction uh, or is it helpful? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think several months ago, it was one of those hard decisions that one makes always in diplomacy when you're balancing 
bilateral relations with one country and bilateral relations with another. Um, in this case, they chose to enhance their bilateral relationship with Germany and, and were criticized, right? Because, well, what, why are you just rolling over on Nord Stream 2? And, and in particular, uh, I remember those, those negotiations um, at the time, the Ukrainians, President Zelensky was very disappointed that, that they were not part of the, those conversations. And that was, in their view, the United States and Germany, when they released that statement, negotiating about Ukrainian Europe uh, security without the Ukrainians being a part of it. But that's that was then. Today, I think it's a very different situation. Um, and today, the Biden administration does not want to sanction Nord Stream 2 today because they're holding that shit as part of their coercive response should there be a military intervention. Um, and I think that's prudent. I think that's wise. That's the best way to leverage that particular piece that you have. Um, I, I disagree with the way they played it six months ago, but I agree with the way that they are handling the situation today. Fascinating. Um, just a couple more questions. Uh, and I know um, both of you have to go. Uh, Dagmar Uberfeld-Lang asks, uh, Amy, I'm going to put this to you about the role that NATO can play when NATO members are hesitant or ruling out altogether to send troops in support of Ukraine. How useful can sanctions be as a deterrent? Stephen Schoenfeld has a similar question. What are the odds that NATO will truly have the will to fight or defend Ukraine's territorial integrity? Amy? I'm going to start by saying apologies. My dog is howling in the background. My, uh, <laughs> dog my husband is, welcome is going to get that under control in a few seconds. Um, I mean, to start with it, the question about NATO. I mean, NATO members have made it very clear that you know Ukraine is not a member of the alliance. It's a part. It's a valued partner of the alliance, but it's not a member. It's not covered by Article Five. And so, in the event of a renewed Russian invasion, there's you know we are not going to see. NATO deployment or US deployment to Ukraine. The United States has been very clear about that as well. And that's something that I've seen Biden uh, take some heat for as, as to taking that option off the table entirely. Although I suspect the Kremlin is pretty aware that, you know, after what's wrong with Afghanistan, he's not about to send uh, boots on the ground in Ukraine. Um, when it comes to sanctions, I mean, you know, the US is, has has promised punishing economic sanctions. And, um, you know, we're hearing from the administration that those are ready to go, um, you know, within hours of, of a of a, of a renewed Russian invasion or a Russian military assault. Um, but I mean, I think uh, it also depends on, you know, th there's two sides to sanctions, right? There's, you know, there's there there's the deterrent and there's the punishing effect um, from the US, but there's also the Russian calculus. And I think, um, you know, one of the things I often hear speaking to Russian experts is, is what is, you know, what is Putin thinking on the cost of acting now? You know, are the cost of sanctions high enough to deter him from acting? But then as a counterweight to that, you know, what's the cost as far as the Russians see it of not acting now? You know, do they, I think mm. one of their fears is that if they don't act now, um, that the Ukraine may someday join NATO, even though that is seen as being a long way off and a very, very distant prospect, or the Ukraine may become stronger, or there may be deepening cooperation with the United States. And so I think you have all of these factors at play, which will decide, you know, how effective and how potent sanctions can actually be. And only some of them mm. are within our control. Right. I'm going to put the last question to Ambassador McFall. So, um, and this ties back nicely with my first question uh, about, you know, what's in it for Putin? What have they gained? And Ambassador McFall, you said that they've sort of changed the state of play um, in a way that was almost, you know, unthinkable a year ago. Um, over the last month or so, we've seen a range of Russian officials in the press, in media, writing pieces, 
uh, Russia's ambassador to the U.S., uh, Anatoly Antonov, wrote an FP last month about what he calls the five waves of NATO expansion since the dissolution of the Soviet Union. And he also wrote, and I'm going to quote him here, to our simple question to NATO, why are you moving east towards Russia's borders? We have never received any clear answer, unquote. Um, Ambassador McFaul, what do you make of that? And do you think that there the Russian sort of strategy of, you know, approaching the media in that way, has it been working? And how would you respond? Well, first, let me respond as somebody who's followed this issue from the very beginning. Um, and thanks for plugging my book, by the way, Ravi. I, I devote uh, quite a bit of time and uh, to explain this in that book and in other books. And I want to make sure everybody understands that this is not a continuous position of the Russian government. It's been a volatile issue that they roll out and they make in these uh, terms, um, uh, you know, more dire, sometimes greater than others. Go back, for instance, and you can just Google it. It's really easy to find. Uh, Go back and read President Medvedev's uh, press conference when he attended the Russian NATO Council in Lisbon in 2010. I was there. Uh, Read what he said. It's 180 degrees different than what they said yesterday at the last Russian NATO Council. Go back and read what Putin said about NATO. He even, he even thought about in 2000, he toyed with the idea that Russia should join NATO. That's Vladimir Putin saying that. That's not Mike McFall saying that. So just remember, this is not a static thing. It comes and goes depending on the politics. And it exacerbated and it became a giant issue after Russia invaded Ukraine, okay? That's when fears of NATO expansion suddenly just exploded in the Russian press and and Putin talking about it up to 2014. When I was in the U.S. government, it had largely been retired as a major issue in U.S.-Russian relations. That's the first thing. Second, the the verb tense here and the direction that uh, Ambassador Antonov, I also used to work closely with and even hosted him out here at Stanford. Uh, But when he said NATO is expanding east, I would reverse that and say countries Uh, outside of NATO are moving west. And why are they doing that? Because they used to be captive in something called the Warsaw Treaty Organization. Uh, They used to be invaded by one of the members of the Warsaw Pact. Um, And so when they had the opportunity to enhance their security, they were the ones moving west, not NATO moving east. Number three, NATO has never attacked Russia. NATO will never attack Russia. You would have to be crazy to be a leader of a NATO country and say and sit in Brussels or Washington or, or Berlin or Warsaw and say, you know, today's the day that we should mobilize our forces and attack Russia. That never has happened in history. It will never happen. And by the way, Vladimir Putin knows that perfectly well. So when at the end of the meeting today at the OSCE meeting, when the Russian ambassador says we if our if our security concerns about Ukraine are not taken care of, we'll feel compelled to invade Ukraine. That's an absurd setup. Just think about that for a moment. What threat is Ukraine uh, in in terms of military terms presenting to, to Russia? None. Russia invaded Ukraine. Russia has 100,000 troops on Ukrainian borders. And and I think it's just important to understand that if they keep to those talking points, then we'll know, Ravi, that this is all just ultimatum. This is all a pretext. You know, it reminds me of 1938, 1939, where, you know, we we know what Hitler wanted to do. And he just threw out these absurd ideas, you know, appease me or else. 
Um, but I want to I want to leave on a pos- optimistic note. I I don't know if we're there yet because I don't know whether we're still in the initial positioning uh, places of maximalist play uh, you know um, uh, demands. Uh, that might then lead to a substantive negotiation. And on that score, if they're, if the Russians and Putin, let's be clear, we're talking about Putin. If Putin wants to have a big substantive negotiation about European security, I think that's in America's national interest and the interests of our NATO allies and Ukraine, because a lot of the treaties have been either they don't, they're not in place anymore or they're not really enforced the CFE treaty, the Vienna document, the INF treaty, which uh, no longer is in place. That is some real work that could be done, but it would have to be done in a much more earnest way and not just, you know, trading ultimatums on Twitter. That's great. Ambassador McFall, thank you for that. I'm afraid that's all we have time for. I know you have to leave as well, so I'm conscious of of your time. Thank you for that. I'm glad we ran Ambassador Antonov's piece in FP, and I'm glad we had Ambassador McFall uh, on to refute it. Thank you to Ambassador McFall. Thank you, Amy. Uh, And please keep following uh, Amy's work on foreignpolicy.com and, of course, uh, the work of uh, our many other writers and analysts on this topic as it continues to build and develop uh, this week and in the coming weeks. Um, Please also uh, stay tuned uh, to our other events. You can find out what they are and when they are on foreignpolicy.com slash events. Again, it's a benefit of your FP subscription that you can come to these FP live uh, subscriber only events um, where of course we discuss issues in the news um, with experts. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. Thank you for your time, take care and see you soon. That was FP's Editor-in-Chief Ravi Agrawal speaking to experts Michael McFall and me on the possibility of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. You can get access to similar live events and many other features by being a subscriber to Farm Policy. Go to farmpolicy.com slash subscribe. This show is produced by Zimone Perez, Rob Sachs, Rosie Julin, and Anissa Paseshki. Dan Efron is our executive editor for podcasts. I'm your host, Amy McKinnon. We'll be back next week with another episode of Farm Policy Playlist. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning money and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with the single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.